and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Wayne Logan, Gary and Celine Padgett Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Contracting for Fourth Amendment Privacy Online, which he co-authored with Jake Linford and is published in the Minnesota Law Review. So welcome to the show, Wayne. Thanks for having me, Brian, and it's nice to uh, meet meet you online and speak with your listeners. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that uh, Jake helped set this up, and I really uh, enjoyed your timely and interesting article. Um, but for listeners who might not be so familiar with Fourth Amendment doctrine and how it works, I wonder if you could talk a little bit in general about how the Fourth Amendment protects people against searches. In other words, what's the standard for determining whether or not a Fourth Amendment search is permissible and sort of where did it come from? Sure. So, of course, the uh, the Fourth Amendment's in the Bill of Rights, um, and initially it regulated only the federal only federal law enforcement agents, but over the over the years, the U.S. Supreme Court has held that, in fact, the Fourth Amendment also regulates state and local uh, uh, activities of law enforcement agents, um, and it prohibits uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. And so a threshold question always uh, has to be asked is what the police are doing, whether it constitutes a search. And over the decades, the Supreme Court has uh, had a, several uh, approaches to it. Uh, in 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, handed down its important decision in the United States versus Katz. And in Katz, uh, the question before the court was whether, in fact, the police um, use of a listening device to the top of a public telephone booth qualified as a search. And Defendant Katz uh, was allegedly speaking over the telephone line uh, engaged in illegal betting interstate. And so federal agents got that information um, and they used it to prosecute Mr. Katz. So the question, again, before the Supreme Court was whether in fact, there was a search, because only if it's a search, again, the t- very terms of the Fourth Amendment only regulate searches and seizures, only if it was a search uh, would, the be- would the police be regulated and subject to the Fourth Amendment. And the Supreme Court, in a very important decision, uh, decided, yes, in fact, it was a search, even though the police didn't penetrate, physically penetrate the, the telephone booth. And I just as an aside, I- these days when I teach uh, Fourth Amendment criminal procedure matters, I have to put up on the uh, the uh, screen an actual picture of a phone booth because many students these days don't realize what a phone booth is, uh, and I have to say that that's what Superman jumped out of um, <laughs> wearing his cape. So the kind of the the physical aspects of a phone phone booth are important, but the point was that the, the police didn't penetrate it physically, so that was important for the court because up to that point the court kind of looked at. Uh, whether in fact a search occurred was whether the police engaged in what's called a trespass or a physical intrusion. And they didn't again in in Katz. So in Katz, the United States, the Supreme Court handed down, created a new test basically that said um, whether a search occurs when the police um, invade what is called a reasonable expectation of privacy. And this actually kind of came out of the concurring opinion of Justice Harlan, but it became the Katz test. And so there's two questions. Um, with whether a reasonable expectation of privacy exists with a person is number one is where the person indicates subjectively, subjectively manifests an expectation of privacy. So in the Katz case, Mr. Katz 
manifested his subjective expectation of privacy by closing the phone booth and putting the dime in the phone booth. Um, and uh, to be sure, the phone booth was transparent, but at what as the court wrote, what he sought to protect was not the uninvited eye, but the uninvited ear. And that ear, of course, was the listening device that was on the outside of the booth. So the first test uh, of the new CATS test, was, first prong of the, the CATS test was satisfied. Again, he manifested his subjective expectation of privacy. The second question in the CATS test was whether, in fact, that expectation, that subjective expectation the individual has, whether it's reasonable, whether it's objectively reasonable. And that usually is the most significant part of, of, of an analysis the court undertakes. And there too, the court held that Mr. Katz had an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy, that when a person, when he shut the phone booth there, he didn't expect people to be overhearing his telephone conversation. So the very important decision in 1967, and that rule uh, really has uh, decided many, many cases in the decades since. And so uh, in the, uh, the Minnesota Law Review article, again, entitled Contracting for Fourth Amendment Privacy Online. Uh, Jake Linford, who, by the way, is a colleague of mine here at FSU Law, we, we uh, teamed up. Now, Jake is a contact, contracts professor, uh, private law, and I'm a criminal procedure person, public law. And so we thought there might be something worthwhile to discuss with respect to the intersection of private contract law and public Fourth Amendment law. Um, but we can get into that uh, later in our time together. But just for starting purposes, that's what a search is. It's when the police invade a, a reasonable expectation of privacy. Mm-hmm. So, so just, just to really clarify, then, people are protected against searches by the government, by the Fourth Amendment, when they believe or they have a personal expectation that things are going to be private. And we think from some sort of objective outside perspective that the belief or expectation of privacy that they have is reasonable under the circumstances. And that's exactly right. And so, and usually that second prong of the two prong test is whether it's objectively reasonable, that's decided by courts. And that facet of the test in particular has generated controversy over the years. Um, Conservative members of the Supreme Court will um, critique that part of the test because saying essentially it's judges saying from on high that what is objectively reasonable and what's not. Um, but yes, that, that's correct. And so if it is a search, the police have to get a search warrant or they have to have an exception exception to the search warrant. So for instance, uh, consent. So for instance, if a police officer wants to walk up to me and look and look in my backpack and there's no warrant, or, uh, they would have to ask for my permission, provide my consent or have some other kind of extenuating circumstance. So the key thing, again, the threshold question is whether it's a search. And that's where mm. the, uh, the test comes from. Mm. Well, so one aspect of Fourth Amendment doctrine that's been kind of in the news and controversial in recent years is the so-called third-party doctrine, which is really a I think a big part of what your paper is sort of wrestling with in a way. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is and how it works in relation to the concept of a search under the fourth amendment. Right. So, um, so the third party doctrine is very important and it originated actually a little bit before cats in 1967, but the gist of the, of the third party doctrine is that, is that a search doesn't occur. Um, if in fact the third party doctrine applies. And so this is the third party doctrine. It's basically when um, it is believed that a person voluntarily turns over, exposes information 
to a third party. And so there were two, uh, several Supreme Court cases, but one particular one was when an individual turned over bank records, uh, provided records to the bank, and the law enforcement went and got those records without getting a warrant. And the question there was whether, in fact, that was a search. And the Supreme Court held in that case, similar to other cases, that uh, the individual in that case, uh, the defendant, didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy because he gave this information to a third party. So you basically, it's a form of consent in a way. Um, now, even though uh, in that case, Mr. Miller, the bank records case, you know, he had an expectation of secrecy. He may have not thought that the records would be seen by anybody else except for the people in the bank. Uh, the court held that it was not a search because he didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, with respect to those records. So that's the third party doctrine. And so that has decided a lot of cases over the years. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's become more controversial over time in significant part because so much of our um, social and political existence and, and commercial interactions take place online. And so when we, you know, when we engage in search activity on the Internet, for instance, um, or frankly, send an email uh, to somebody, there's a third party involved. There's going to be a, a carrier uh, involved with respect to an email, or there's going to be some entity in the cloud or some uh, computer, um, you know, internet um, aspect will um, essentially be reposing that information. So in an interesting case a few years ago, United States versus Jones, the question before the U.S. Supreme Court was, uh, was it a search when the police um, put a, a, a tracking device, a GPS tracking device in Mr. Jones's car, and they tracked it for roughly a month. And the US Supreme Court unanimously held that it was a search, so therefore the police had to get a search warrant. Um, but an interesting concurring opinion, Justice Sotomayor said, you know, this is really not the case for it, but I want to say that I'm concerned about how the, the third party doctrine, again, this idea that when you disclose information to a third party, you are essentially disclosing it to the police, um, how that, you know, is affected by the internet. Because so, for instance, on your home computer, you may be, you know, searching all kinds of things and none of it illegal, um, but it can be sensitive issues, you know, you know, reflecting WebMD web searches and things of that nature. So she kind of, you know, fired a kind of a warning shot in this concurring opinion. And so fast forward to 2018, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in, in the Carpenter decision dealt with a similar issue. So in the Jones case, as we, I just mentioned, the police physically attached a tracking device on Jones's car, and the court found unanimously it was a search. In this case, Carpenter, what the police did was that without a warrant, they got geolocational information from cell phone providers um, to track the, the towers that are used to track um, and create, enable individuals' use of cell phones. So the question there was not physical attachment of a device, but whether in fact, um, simply because these records were held by Verizon and Sprint and companies like that, a third party again, just like the bank records, whether in fact the third party doctrine would say, I'm sorry, Mr. Carpenter doesn't have an, a Fourth Amendment right here. He doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the geolocation data, where he, wherever he went, from point A to B to C to D to E over a period of time. And um, the U.S. Supreme Court, again, uh, held that this was a search and a more fractured decision, a divided court. And they held that the third party doctrine, 
doesn't necessarily determine here uh, that the fact whether in fact Mr. Carpenter had a Fourth Amendment right that the majority held uh, that in fact there was a Fourth Amendment right in that situation. So this Carpenter decision is important. The court was careful to say we're not doing away with the third party doctrine, but basically the court said with respect to these data, this tracking information, these records, there is it's not a third party doctrine case. So he had a Fourth Amendment right, Mr. Carpenter did. Mm -hmm. So that's a roundabout way of giving you an answer to what the third party doctrine is. And there's reason, again, scholars have criticized it repeatedly over the years. And, and now there seem to be some, some cracks in the wall in, in the Supreme Court with respect to whether this third party doctrine is going to continue. Mm -hmm. Well, so Wayne, one thing that's been confusing to me, and I don't know if there's a good answer to this or not, but like, how does the third party doctrine work in relation to the two prongs of the Fourth Amendment analysis? In other words, is the third party doctrine saying that people don't have a subjective expectation of privacy when it applies, or that it's not objectively reasonable for them to have a subjective expectation of privacy? Or is there like something totally different going on that I'm not understanding? Well, I think you've you've kind of identified you know one of the one of the criticisms of it, which is that it is not it's rather amorphous. It's just simply that you don't have you know from on high you don't have an expectation of privacy because you're sharing it with somebody else, and that by definition is objectively unreasonable. Um, and uh, the, fo the focus of this article, if we want to shift to the focus of the article, um, so what we're doing here is kind of in the in the internet ecosystem, so to speak, in the online world where we share so much information, um, you know, a moment ago we were discussing how when you do internet search searches, it reveals information about yourself, not about Ill illegality necessarily, but personal information. Um, it may be a querying a political group or something like that. When you're in the online world, social media obviously is really important. Um, in terms of service agreements and privacy settings and things of that nature, uh, potentially come into play. Um, and obviously, Facebook is enormously popular uh, and plays a central role in modern social and political life. And so that's that's a, a main focus of the article that, you know, so again, if you apply strict third party doctrine, if I have a Facebook page, and I have one friend out there, uh, that by definition, would say that I don't have a, a privacy right, because I'm sharing that information with somebody else. Um, now, you know, as people have pointed out, the third party doctrine has a lot of weak conceptual foundations. Uh, for instance, you might say, well, in that famous Katz case in 1967, uh, you know, the telephone company could have been listening in on Mr. Katz's phone call. Um, and if that's the case, then he doesn't have a privacy expectation. Uh, but, you know, no search would have occurred. So by the same token today, you know, simply because I, I have one friend on my Facebook posting, uh, on, on my Facebook page. Um, by virtue of that, if you have a strict application of third-party doctrine, you would say the person doesn't have a Fourth Amendment right. Um, so the police can go in and access that without a warrant or consent or an exigency or anything. They can go in and get that information. And so the virtual world has, has um, complicated uh, the third-party doctrine uh, in ways that it wouldn't have really been predicted back when it first was uh, created back in the 60s and 70s. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like given the way the technology works, there's sort of a third-party proxy for almost all information that we end up communicating, whether or not we're even realizing that we're communicating or even creating maybe that information in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, back to Justice Sotomayor's concurrence in the Jones case, the GPS tracking case, she urged that there should be a difference between um, secrecy and privacy, simply because something is not secret per se, like the bank records we talked about a moment ago, doesn't mean that a person should should uh, lose a privacy expectation. Uh, and I, I personally think that's an important recognition to keep in mind as we go ahead when so much of life is, occurs online in the virtual reality. Um, and so that's kind of what the article tries, tries to address. Uh, and you know, one of the problems here, of course, is that uh, there can be a real chilling effect, which is something Samayor also mentioned and addressed in her concurrence, that you know, if, in fact, we're so paranoid about uh, law enforcement eavesdropping uh, on our social media accounts and things of that nature, that could have a certainly could chill social life, but also political discourse, which is a, a really a, an important outgrowth of the Fourth Amendment, because if people don't feel as if they can uh, communicate freely with one another, that obviously has you know First Amendment impact, and also just you know with respect to general political discourse, it's, it's problematic in, in that regard too. So that's why we felt it was important to try to see if we can kind of infuse some of the Fourth Amendment doctrine with contract law. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this con- in this particular context, and mm-hmm. what we found out when we reported on the article, there's kind of two parts to this article. The first part was descriptive, and we we looked at uh, kind of a surprising number of courts have been wrestling with this issue of of the con- contractual aspects of of online uh, life, and we saw a surprising number of courts were at least certainly at least acknowledging. Um, privacy and settings, terms of service agreements, and things of that nature when they're trying to assess whether a person has a, a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that's important in itself because, again, uh, if you take a, a strict third-party doctrine view on social media, for instance, there wouldn't be any Fourth Amendment privacy rights. So we kind of say that the, fourth, the, the third, third-party doctrine is kind of being hollowed out from below uh, by these state and uh, lower federal courts and these decisions we talk about in our article. So that's the descriptive part. And then what you might call the prescriptive part, we shift to say how we look at how how contract law can perhaps provide a meaningful and attractive alternative to the the CATS test, which again itself has been criticized over the years, has been too indeterminate and kind of too open-ended about what should qualify as a privacy right. Mm. Well, on one level, it seemed to me like the paper was almost advocating more emphasis on subjective expectations of privacy, given the kind of um, atomistic, uh, heterogeneous way that internet services end up working. And like, almost seems like it was suggesting that or arguing that the relationships that people have both contractual and contextual with different internet service providers might provide us with information or at least clues about what kind of privacy people using them expect to have. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, that one of, again, it's all playing out against the backdrop of 
um, what is reasonable under the circumstances. And I, I think the courts, this kind of body of case law that is, is developing, it's still it, decisions in this realm are still being issued, of course, wrestling with these issues, is they're, they're willing to look at the third party doctrine in a, cri a critical way that you don't see courts doing in the past and a way similar in the Carpenter decision by the US Supreme Court, you know, simply be the prospect that somebody else, you know, law enforcement might be able to see it doesn't doesn't cancel your Fourth Amendment privacy right. And that's an important shift um, with respect to orientation. It's, it's not a very, it, it, there's, a, there's, there's a movement now afoot and we're seeing it in these courts here where they're willing to take a more critical um, view of this very really kind of traditional doctrine that, as I said before, you know, cancel people's Fourth Amendment doctrine, Fourth Amendment rights um, in many, many different contexts over the years. Mm. Well, so, I mean, in practical terms, what does that mean? I mean, like, if courts are trying to determine whether or not someone has a reasonable expectation of privacy in a particular circumstance, what might they look to to determine whether or not that's the case? I mean, you talk about the kind of relationship to the internet service providers. What about that relationship might or might not provide clues about people's reasonable expectations? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a rather complicated question because, um, so again, there are privacy settings. That's one aspect where I can manifest my subjective expectation of privacy to follow up on your earlier question. And, and then there's behaviors. Um, and with respect, if an individual is behaving in a way that's contrary to what they're signaling, that obviously can complicate the analysis. Um, so let's just start out, you know, that I, I have a, a kind of a narrow privacy setting, uh, again, Facebook. Uh, and then the website design uh, indicates that um, I have a privacy interest they're going to protect. And then down buried in the boilerplate, it indicates that they're going to, you know, freely share information with the police. Um, so it can be a complicated question as to whether, you know, what to honor at what point to honor. Um, but one of the things we're trying to do in this paper is to sensitize people to um, users of social media in particular or or engage in the online environment, the importance of some of the contractual kind of private law aspects um, uh, that, that are at play in, in these particular situations. And of course, you know, people, this what is known as a privacy paradox, where people say that they want to protect their privacy, but they don't necessarily behave in a way that's consistent with that. And so, you know, one of our goals in this article is to, to again, just to sensitize people to the importance of you know, reading these documents, the, the agreements, uh, to the extent that they're they can be understood, um, and also you know how they how they comport themselves in, in the in the uh, the online environment, and also you know with respect to their privacy settings. Mm. Mm. Well, one one takeaway that I had from the article really was that there's this interesting disconnect between, at least in some cases, what the kind of supposed contractual or maybe actual contractual relationships between internet providers and their customers are from a contractual standpoint as compared to what consumers or users perhaps understand that relationship to be. Like they aren't always 100% communicating exactly what kind of legal restrictions they're placing on themselves in relationship to their users. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's kind of what's, what might be thought of as a trust-based design kind of context. And so individuals can be lulled into a false sense of security with respect to their the privacy of their interactions uh, online. And that's, you know, it's, it's, there seems to be evidence to support that that's kind of part of the, the business model. Um, and again, you know, that can have a really negative effect on um, you know, social discourse and democratic interactions. If people are, you know, behaving in a way that um, they're being kind of lulled into a false sense of privacy security, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get the sense that like in some circumstances, these internet providers want to reserve to themselves the ability to use certain kinds of data in various ways if they want to. And it seemed to me that you were suggesting in the paper that perhaps the mere fact that the companies have structured their relationship with their customers such that they may have access to and the ability to use data under certain circumstances doesn't necessarily mean that the consumers don't have a belief that some of that data is still private. Is that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and again, of course, there's also, it operates in many different levels. So, for instance, you know, the New York Times has had an inter- interesting and important piece on uh, tracking of physical movements by virtue of telephones, right? And people would do that. People are oblivious to that, but those are data, uh, and very often the data are monetized by companies. Um, and also, there can be obviously, you know, important ramifications. Uh, with respect to, you know, law enforcement and, and democratic governance as well. Yeah, so there's a, I mean, in, increasingly, um, you know, even the, in, the, in the context of, um, of course, the First Amendment only regulates government action, uh, but Facebook um, is a big player with respect to regulating um, content of online um, speech. Um, and so the we're seeing a real shift now because again, it's a function large part of the fact that so much of life is online um, that there's a kind of a privatization of the first amendment in a way. Uh, and so in this article, Professor Linford and I try to hi- you know, highlight that there's a privatization of the fourth amendment uh, in part here as indicated by these courts. Um, so uh, we, you know, we think it's a useful contribution um, to where things stand. And again, we'll see. I mean, it may be the, the case that the U.S. Supreme Court um, will do away with the third party doctrine, um, as many people urge, uh, but that that's not ind- indic- indicated by the most recent pronounced from the court in Carpenter in 2018. Again, the cell site location information case where the court said that distinguished essentially said that the third party doctrine didn't apply. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, can you can you talk a little bit why you th- about why you think this approach is preferable to alternative approaches that others might have suggested? Is it because you think it might help us track more closely people's subjective expectations of of privacy, or for some other reason? Yeah. So, um, you know, part of the the article and significant part is framed as a what we think is a useful alternative to cats, or at least a, a kind of augmentation of cats in this context, where um, we'll have a, a better, kind of more concrete way to assess Fourth Amendment reasonable expectation of privacy, both with, with respect to both prongs of the cats test. Number one, the subjective manifestation, and also importantly, the second prong. So again, you know, simply because I uh, have a, I'm friends with you on Facebook. 
doesn't necessarily, which again, and I, and I limit the extent of my friends, well, that's a subjective manifestation of privacy. But with respect to the second prong, simply because I'm willing to have you as my friend and interact you doesn't necessarily mean that I'm also amenable to police having access to this information and that they can get this information without a warrant. So in that way, we think it's a, a positive step forward. Um, this so-called you know, privatization of Fourth Amendment law, con kind of infusing Fourth Amendment law with contract law by making it more, um, uh, allow for a more systematic um, an objective analysis uh, for courts to undertake when they can look to contract law uh, for what a person expects is going to be private, and number and relatedly number two, what society should consider is reasonable for a person to expect. I mean, we honor contract terms all the time, obviously, in commercial interactions, and we say that you know there's a role for that here in the Fourth Amendment context as well, as as opposed to again the cat's test, which has been criticized as being far too kind of normatively driven by judges. Um, mm. And, you know, some it might say, I mean, one criticism would be is that, you know, essentially this privatization of Fourth Amendment privacy expectation, again, is problematic because it's going to be too individualized. Um, well, as we point out in the article, the reality is that Fourth Amendment rights are not you know, equally distributed. Um, you know, a person who lives, you know, in a, in a, sing, a you know, single family house behind a, a large fence has more privacy, frankly, than a person who lives in a, a multi-dwelling unit. Um, so the idea that Fourth Amendment rights are equally available uh, throughout society is not true as a, just a descriptive matter. And so on here, you know, the idea is that if you can engage in an arm's length uh, contractual negotiation or understanding with Facebook or whatever the entity might be, um, that there might be um, you know, some you know, value to the autonomy that is associated with that. And again, this is predicated on the idea that people know what they're doing. They, you know, people tend to be overconfident, certainly myself included, with respect to the tech savviness. Um, but again, as I said, one, one goal in this article is to highlight to people the importance um, of these contractual relationships that are uh, playing out online is the importance is in significant part lies in the fact that courts are looking at them now to try to figure out whether a fourth amendment right is at play uh, in this online context. Mm. Well, so Wayne, in, in closing, your and Jake's article focuses on kind of thinking about expectations of privacy in the context of the Fourth Amendment and rights against intrusions by the government. I, I wonder if you think it might also have some helpful insights or potential in thinking about privacy interests more broadly, both in terms of kind of governmental positive regulation of privacy interests and also thinking about the relationships between consumers and the companies that are providing services to them, irrespective of the role of the government. Right. And you know, again, this is um, this idea of private ordering of constitutional rights is, you know, admittedly a a uh, interesting and emerging issue. Um, but I mean, part of the idea here is that with this greater sensitization, we'll be a leveling up um, uh, that, you know, individuals who are sensitized to the privacy ramifications of terms of service agreements and privacy settings, things like that, 
they're going to demand and expect more from uh, the internet providers. Um, and hopefully there'll be a leveling up that all people would benefit from. And of course, if a person wants to opt out of a, a you know, a, a privacy uh, right, that's certainly, you know, their prerogative. But what we're trying to suggest in this article is that th there can be a place here for private law um, with respect to courts assessing whether there's a public Fourth Amendment right uh, in, in a particular situation. Great. Well, Wayne, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was a fun conversation, and I really uh, enjoyed uh, reading your paper and, and talking to you about it. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, happy holidays. <laughs> Likewise. Contractual 